And you're listening to WMNF Tampa, Sarasota Clearwater Community Conscious Radio. Hi, I'm Mary Glennie. And I'm Arlene Englehart. And you are listening to From a Point of View. A woman's point of view? A woman's point of view, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> point of view, absolutely. Uh, I think I've been listening to too much uh, oh. too much P, uh, impeachment. Um, uh, well, and uh, it's really been, I think, superb, but it's disturbing the reactions of some of the people. I, I I think our democracy is on its knees right now. I really do. I think we are hanging by a thread, and I have found the impeachment presentation so far riveting and terribly disturbing. I You know, I, I knew that there was literally a hostile trying to take over the Capitol building, but watching that yesterday and seeing the horrendous, horrendous force and measures used against the police, I think it was one of the hardest things I have watched. I, 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 I still, I, I literally have nightmares of that. I think his name was Hodges, the policeman being trapped in that door. I, I don't know how he survived. And I know the kind of grievous internal injuries he has. His life is going to be compromised forever. And there he was, you know, protecting, protecting the Capitol, for heaven's sake, protecting the Capitol when the electoral votes were being counted. So literally one of the proudest things of our democracy, the peaceful transition of power. It couldn't be more fundamental to our democracy. Uh, and there it was the attempted to be impeded with brutal force. And so it was... It, it was riveting. It, it really was. And, uh, you know, that we, we have, it, 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 with the show, theme of the show and today, uh, first, first part of the show, we're going to be talking actually about Marian Anderson and uh, the important role she has played in history. And, you know, that I am so aware that if we have got to know our history, we have got to know the history of violence, of violence. That we have that we have experienced and we have done in this country. We to start with, we must remember this was not an empty land when people came here. What happened to the Native Americans? How were they treated? How are they treated today? And then uh, you know, sixteen nineteen, the white lion and slavery. And we, if we don't understand our history, and, and you can't just look upon history as dates. It's people. It's very important, people. It's people like Marian Anderson. It's people like, you know, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King, the Kennedys. But right now, what's happening, you know, in our country and the, the, the personality, the psychology of a Donald Trump is huge right now. And the man was our president. And so, anyway, but I'm looking at the clock, and I really want to get started. And so I am going to put this music on by Marian Anderson. Actually, this is hopefully the song uh, that she actually played on the Lincoln Memorial, and why is that important? And then I will be coming back with Dr. Uh, Adrienne Lynn Smith, uh, a professor at Duke, and she's going to be talking not only about the documentary that's going to be shown Monday night here on our PBS stations on American, on American Experience at 9 o'clock p.m., uh, The Voice of Freedom, Marian Anderson, uh, and then we'll be talking 
talking, we'll be bringing a little bit of that video, that extraordinary video um, that was presented as part of the impeachment hearings. And Jeet here, uh, he's going to be, he's been following it intensely. And so anyway, <laughs> we'll give it a go. So uh, let's start out hopefully with Marion Anderson. Well, that's all right. I'm going to put this on instead. It's coming through a hole in the air. Oh, sure. From those nights in Tiananmen Square. but a little snafu there, but we'll have her a little later. Uh, but uh, the song that was on talking about democracy coming to the USA. And uh, we, with us, I am really excited. We have Dr. Adrienne Lentz-Smith, and she's an associate professor of history at Duke. And she particularly is, a, is very, very knowledgeable in, in African and African-American studies, freedom struggles. And she particularly uh, is, it was interested in uh, dealing with fiction and art also. And so, uh, Dr. Len Smith, welcome so much to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, you know, I knew a little bit about Marian Anderson, and when we're talking for the listeners again, uh, and it's an absolutely wonderful documentary that's going to be shown Monday night, February 15th at 9 o'clock p.m. here on RWEDU, and it's American Experience and the Voice of Freedom. Or, as I learned watching the documentary, uh, which is so powerful, uh, as Arturo Toscanini said, the voice of the century. And so, wow. Uh, you, you know, Dr. Lentz uh, Smith, uh, I, I, I really feel, when I was reading that <clears throat> and following that and comparing it to what's happening right now with the impeachment hearings, which I'm sure you are following, too, with your tremendous interest in history, I think if we understood more about the history of this country and the, the total stream of violence 
that has been here from the very beginning. Uh, I think we, I think we, I'm not sure we'd be in the situation we are now, but we certainly understand it better, don't you think? I think that's right. If we were willing to know that history, to reckon with that history, um, and to not try to tell a story of a nation born good that can do no wrong, we would be in a different place now. But I'm particularly thinking of Marian Anderson, and obviously, you know, she was given a God-given voice. <laughs> and so here we have, no, I'm serious, uh, you know, that because of the time that she lived, uh, you know, I've only heard some of those old recordings, but that contralto range is extraordinary. I, I don't know if any woman singing today really has that range. Do you think they do? I'm not sure they do. Well, I have a colleague, Blair Kelly, who once told me that Beyonce was a contralto and that I should appreciate her talent more, but um, that's a very different kind of singing, right, in a different moment. But you're right. Um, Marian Anderson was born with this incredible talent. That talent was nurtured by the black community in Philadelphia in which she grew up. She was turned away from the music school in Philadelphia because they didn't take black students. Um, and But she was lucky enough to have people who believed in her and sponsored her nevertheless, right? Because if segregation or the sort of codes of Jim Crow had had their way, we never would have heard of Marian Anderson. Yeah, and, and something to remember too, right? And that racism takes things from us. Yeah, and, and, and I'm thinking of this extraordinary artist. And, you know, if you're born with a God-given voice like that, which he really had, uh, you would be far more aware of the possibilities of voice than people like maybe, I certainly wouldn't be aware of it. But I've heard enough opera to know that the way opera is sung is different than any other singing you hear. And it moves you very deeply because there's a range of depth they get to it. And they somehow reach an emotional status in you. Uh, and, and it's the combination of the words and the sound that I can only imagine a young girl, precocious voice, uh, that was so good that literally <clears throat> that everybody around her realizes the way she can sing. So she's six years old, and she's in this uh, chorus for the, the, the Baptist Seminary because they're the only ones that have any kind of high, high sound, high church, if you will. And she's six years old. And, and so people in the community already realize that this just wasn't an ordinary voice. And as you said, you know, well, with this kind of a voice, you would live with it all the time. And you'd be aware if you were just speaking to your friends or your mother or somebody, how different it is than when you're singing or when you're singing in church. And so she really wants to go to the top school in Philadelphia. <laughs> and so they raise money because her father's dead. He dies. They raise money for her because they realize that she really has something and they want to help her all the way they can. I think one woman referred to it as the ram in the bush. I, I never even heard yeah. that expression. I thought it was beautiful. But there she goes to this school to get accepted. She waits all day and then she's told that only white girls are accepted. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people would have quit. You know, I mean, or it would have broken them so badly. And here you see, but you see what's so important because to me, you know, I, I have thought for a long time, Dr. Lance Smith, 
that actually the morality of this country is determined by African-American women. I've always thought that because I thought the measures that they had to have and the depth of, of strength of psychology and emotion they had to survive slavery, to, to care for their families, that I thought that the only chance this country has to come out of this is frankly with them. And I think you saw it with Marian Anderson. You do, and you see the, the the beauty and the necessity of a community coming together, right? That uh-huh. moment in the school when you would think about it, just person passing after passing after pa- passing her by, where she had to have the fortitude and the wherewithal to understand that just because she was not being valued in that moment did not mean that she was not valuable, right? And she could know that because the... Philadelphia community that surrounded her made sure that she didn't internalize um, the disregard and the and the kind of dismissal of her and her talent. But you're right that you know Zora Neale Hurston wrote, or one of the characters in their eyes were watching God wrote, "The black woman is the mule of the world." And in that case, she was discussing the suffering, the multiple intersectional burdens that black women carried. But the flip side of that is that black women have been um, the stalwarts, the visionaries, the actors, the agents of black freedom struggles since we've had a black freedom struggle. Yeah, yeah. And and the burden, I mean, the, the t- and, 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 you know, this isn't related, but. A horrible incident last week. Uh, what was it in Rochester where that nine-year-old girl, the police pepper sprayed her. And the policeman actually said to a nine-year-old little girl who they should have been concerned because she wanted to either commit suicide, kill herself, or kill her mother. And if a nine-year-old is telling you that, that should really get your attention and concern for that child. And instead, they pepper sprayed her. And the policeman told her she was acting like a child. And she said, I am a child. And, you know, I mean, history is just... It's kind of dancing on our heads right now, if you will. And you must have noticed that. And I was thinking again, because I was into Marian Anderson, you know, getting ready for her, so to speak, of 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 her struggle. And, and, and you know, then she's turned down. But then she has the opportunity, what, in 1919 to go to Chicago because uh, the, the Negro Artists Association wanted to showcase some of their talent. And, you know... I knew something about the terrible riots that went on all over this country in 1919, but I had no idea they were that bad. So it was a dangerous time for any young black woman to be traveling by train from Philadelphia to Chicago, wasn't it? It was, and to be, she was actually in Chicago during the riot. And you're right, the summer of 1919 was so brutal um, and so deadly, these waves of white-led, terrorist violence that James Weldon Johnson, the poet and Florida native, dubbed it the Red Summer of 1919. And among the worst of those riots were Washington, D.C. and Chicago, Chicago possibly the most infamous, um, with the burning of people in the streets, the destruction of black homes, the the murder of black people, and, and 
Anderson, who was still a young woman, kind of wandered into the fray of it. Because I think this is the other thing we think about her God-given talent, her eventual and ultimate celebrity in which she will become, uh, uh, you know, world-famous, wealthy superstar. But there's not enough money or talent or celebrity in the world that allows an African-American woman in this period to outpace and outrun Jim Crow. And one of the things that we have to think about in our current period is how how much of that, how much of the kind of the ideology, the practices, perhaps put in colorblind language, but still practice, uh, Jim Crow, we've inherited on the other side of the civil rights movement. I think it's quite a bit in the story of the poor child who's not allowed to be a child, whose pain is denied and not seen by a police officer, her experience tells us that we've gotten nowhere near as far as the triumphalist narrative of the movement would have you think. Yeah, and again, we're talking to Dr. Adrian Lentz-Smith. And wouldn't you like to be a student in her class to get this wonderful knowledge and, and really depth of understanding? And I'm thinking again of 1919. You know, in a way, when you look at history, it goes so fast. But when you're living it, it's quite the opposite. And so we have soldiers from World War One, and, and most of us don't even know much about World War One. You know, we, we don't know what a horrendous conflict it was. But it was really amazing in the documentary documentary when there this white soldier is standing there you know in his uniform you know post-war uh with his gun and a young black man also in uniform is standing and they're face to face and so already you're seeing this you know that somehow the young white soldier thinks that you know he has to stand up and not allow the black soldier because the black soldiers had some equality and in the trenches you know everybody is equal so to speak to die uh, and, 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 and you could see the, the, the fierceness of that young white soldier that he had to protect what he saw as rightfully his, which would be taken by this man. And, you know, I, I, I found one of the, some of the footage in this documentary are absolutely riveting. And I don't know where they got all of that and the time they spend on it, but I, I really found it so valuable to be watching this at the same time I'm watching the Confederate flag in our capital. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, and, 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 and you realize, oh, my God, you know, you, you don't just repeat history, but you've got to watch out because if you don't deal with the problems, they become deeper embedded. And it's just yeah. that harder in your psyche like I find right now, I really find our democracy is hanging by a thread. And the violence in that Capitol building and, and the heartbreaking thing of these two African-American policemen that had survived uh, sitting down and crying because is this America? You know, I, I mean... I, I, and, 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 and again, I, 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 I don't know of a more timely documentary than you're showing right now on the American experience. Do you? I think it really is so worth watching because you will understand much more of the violence. Well, I think that Rob Rathley, the director, and um, Epigraph Productions did an amazing job on the documentary. And 
The material that they used came from a wealth of places, but some of that is in the National Archives and the Library of Congress. And you're right that that sort of iconic picture of the black soldier and the white soldier staring each other down in Chicago is so moving because you know that's a continuation of a struggle that was underway even on the front, you know, in during the war when white soldiers were as committed to fighting black soldiers' aspirations as they were to fighting a foreign enemy, right? So the violence of the Red Summer in some ways is an extension of white folks' resolve to not let the war mean anything for African-American citizenship rights mm-hmm. and black folks' resolve to make sure that it does. Um, the the pain of that, right, of having to die to demand of your nation fairness is repeated over and over across the 20th century and obviously into the 21st. I think Eugene Goodman, I'm not positive, but I'm the police officer who lured the mob away um, from Mitt Romney and other congressmen. I think he's a vet, right? Yes. He has given so much to this country and then faces a mob that includes fellow veterans mm-hmm. right, who are denying that he or people like them are legitimate voters or actors in the democracy that he had, you know, was willing to risk his life for. That's horrible, right? But I think you're right that we need to think about the ongoing utility, not just of political violence, violence but of racist political violence in, in maintaining a democracy that disfranchises some, right, and intimidates others from even trying to participate. It's painful precisely because it's not new. It's painful because we have been doing the struggle for a very long time. And have and having people realize that it's happening as if it were new over and over again when it's actually, you know, centuries or a century and a half old, a terrible at math, almost over a century and a half at this point. Yeah, and to me, it, it's so interesting. And I'm gonna, again, I'm going to be going back to Marian Anderson. And it seems that people really need something to believe in, you know, whatever. Whether, you know, it's a myth, whether whether it, it's the deepness of their religious beliefs, et cetera. They, they just, you need, to be, you need to put your cornerstone on something. And I found it fascinating because this extraordinary talent of this very young child uh, caught the attention, actually, of a pretty well-known and very accomplished opera star, if you will, who was totally high voice, if you will. I don't know what else to call it, so to speak, her high training. Hayes, uh, Mr. Hayes. And so he takes an interest in her. And then uh, she, he, I imagine he makes a connection that she is able, actually, to get some training by one of the best voice teachers here in this country, not that they're as good as Europe, but she does get that opportunity. Uh, and and, and and the strength of Marian Anderson when she realizes she performs at all these schools and all these places, but she wants to go downtown, if you will. She wants to go to town hall. And uh, to me, it was fascinating that, uh, you know, I don't know that much about singing, but I know that leader is singing by German. You better know the language or you're in serious trouble. And she knew no German, 
And so I don't know whether it was set up that she would fail so badly. Uh, but it was a pretty disastrous uh, concert for her. And she was creamed. They really took after her. And once again, she could have quit. A lot of people would have just quit. Uh, but luckily... And to me, I guess what I'm trying to say is there are, that whether it's a haze or a, the music instructor, it's almost as if so many are aware they're playing it forward. You know, in other words, they're passing it on. And so luckily, she realizes she has to get to Europe. She will have chances there. And she goes off and lands in London and uh, <laughs> and, and tell us. And that was really extraordinary, her experiences when she was abroad. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think her experience, her failure in New York is instructive. It reminds us that for all the talent in the world, you have to accompany your talent with training, right? And with all the talent in the world, there's still going to be moments when you fail. And so you have to learn what to do on the other side of that. And you're right. She goes to Europe and it is like the world opening up to her, right? She gets the training. She gets huge amounts of acclaim. Um, she gets, you know, men who are interested in her romantically, right? So she gets all of this kind of... <laughs> that was cute. And it's a way to, like, to use the colloquial, she gets her swerve on <laughs> in some ways, like in a, in, a, in, a variety, in a variety of ways. And it's empowering and it's invigorating and it's amazing and it kind of makes her the Marian Anderson that we think of. And then, you know, several years in, she runs up against Nazism, uh, Nazi sort of like racial order that has explicitly and avowedly borrowed from a Southern American racist order. And she finds that she got away from Jim Crow for a while, but that you can't outrun it. It will find you, right? Um, and it's one of the things that sends her back home. Yeah. But she comes back home triumphant, right? She doesn't come back with her head hanging down. Yeah, and I think it's important because, again, I think Americans are not quite as up in their history as they need to be. And to me, it's really important that when the Nazis were coming into power in 1934, and they were basing their laws, uh, their racial laws, particularly against Jewish people, uh, based on what they considered their role models, the United States, so to speak, Jim Crow the way they treated racial problems. And this is what <clears throat> drove her out of, of Salzburg. Uh, even though, again, Toscanini and others, as artists, there's always is that ram in the bush, so to speak. <clears throat> they, they, they will not allow Marian Anderson, who is just the sensation of Europe, Europe <clears throat> excuse me, in Scandinavia, they call it Marian fever, uh, because she's not sufficiently Aryan. Period. I mean, no doubt about that for her. And so then, but they arranged to have a concert for her. And then all the anti-Fascists, the anti-Nazis, including Arturo Toscanini and others, show up. And so that's when she gets the moniker because he hears, and Toscanini's pretty well known even then, that this is a once-in-a-century voice. And so she becomes the voice of the century so she comes back to America, world-renowned, considered the top performer, and actually a very wealthy woman because she's made good money there. And it kind of sets the stage then to continue her battle here. That's exactly right. And it's funny. So, and 
the story that we know what ends, ends her with her singing at Constitution Hall is a battle that Walter White, who is the incredibly tactical and savvy um, and kind of well-connected head of the NAACP, that Walter White took up kind of not quite on her behalf. It was an anti-segregationist move that he didn't fully consult with her on before he just kind of um, took the idea and ran with it. So Marian Anderson gets pulled into something that's quite significant, but that she didn't really sign up for. And that's kind of fascinating to me. Oh, um, <laughs> the, the, the interplays... Walter White is a story. That should be a documentary in itself. I mean, he was yeah. absolutely fascinating. And and because he was what they, the term they use is high yellow, he could have easily passed for white. He was blonde, blue-eyed, but he never did. Yeah. And then he really um, went after lynching in the South because he then, uh, with his blonde, blue eyes, could cover it. And so yeah. he really had to battle. And so it was Marian Anderson. And then, you know, they want to, she's committed to Howard University to give this benefit concert. And the only place then that she could give it would be in Constitution Hall, which is owned by the DAR. And they say, uh, 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 only whites. No, no, no. And so then luckily, even though it's quite a struggle, White has the brilliant idea. She, we're going to get her to sing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And when they watch the documentary, they'll realize that the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated in 1922 to be very different, to be something that they managed to totally get rid of the emancipator and just looked upon it as this little problem between states. (laughs) And so African-Americans were segregated totally. And so, you know, they kind of boycotted the Lincoln Monument. But Marian Anderson in 1939 really did dedicate the Lincoln Memorial, brought back slavery from about the Civil War was about, wow. And uh, I'm looking looking at the clock and and the rest is history because it's just wonderful then that, you know, when that concert comes and and White knows how to really do it. And so at the same time, we get RCA Victor, you know, which is making these Victrolas, and they want to extend their range. So Marian Anderson already is performing spirituals for them. So people are aware, but it's broadcast all over the nation. (laughs) And a young Martin Luther King at 10 years old hears that. And then, and then, yeah, and and, and then, so on the march on Washington, he stands on the very same slab of marble that Marian Anderson stood to give his speech, uh, and but he insisted that she be there also to sing a song. And do you know what song she sang at that uh, the march on Washington? I don't know. Did she sing "Lift Every Voice and Sing"? Or is that just my guess? Because it is uh, like absolute. Um, Sort of black people's song. I don't. I actually can't recall now. No, it, it doesn't matter. I, I tried to find it because I was just curious. Uh, but uh, it, it it it's an extraordinary story, and to me, it's an important story. And Arlene, my co-host, was uh, you know because she's also been watching and preparing for this. Uh, Arlene, do you want to quickly say what you found out about Marian Anderson? Um, I'm not sure what you're referring oh, to. Oh, well, you asked. But I know one of the things that you were 
that we were talking about is that when I was a child, I remember that my parents had a phonograph. You know, one of those things that you use a needle to play an actual record. And one of the recordings that they had and played frequently was Marian Anderson. Uh, but more specifically, what I was referring to, you know, we have people ask us what we're doing on the show. And Arlene had happened to have three different people that she said, oh, well, we're doing the documentary on Marian Anderson. Who is she? <laughs> yes, and, yeah. and two of them were not youngsters. One of them was, you know, young enough that maybe I could understand that. And that person didn't even know who Mahalia Jackson was. Well, oh, Heather Murgatroyd. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I, you have been so gracious, uh, Dr. Adrian Lensmith. And so the rest of the documentary, uh, people are going to have to watch. And again, it's on Monday night, February 15th, American Experience, WEDU here, and 9 to 11. And uh, it, it really is extraordinary. And uh, really, you should be quite proud being a part of it, Dr. Dear Len Smith, it, it, to me, it's extraordinary. I am proud. I'm delighted that it came out, and I hope everyone has an opportunity to see it. Well, I thank you so much for giving us this time today. You've been very gracious. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank Bye you. Y'all. You take care. Bye-bye. And Arlene, do you have anything you want to say? And nothing except that uh, I just, I remember listening to the beauty of her voice as a child and thinking, boy, I wish I could sing like that. And <laughs> don't we all? Then when I heard about what happened with the Lincoln, the Lincoln Memorial concert, um, I guess my mother told me that story. I was horrified. I thought, why wouldn't she be allowed to sing in any place that offered concerts? Well, let's give a listen here. Hopefully, this time we'll be able to play it. that Marian Anderson should raise her voice in tribute to the noble Lincoln whom mankind will ever honor. Miss Marian Anderson. That's really quite an extraordinary voice, and uh, I'm. Uh, uh, and as Arlene and I were saying earlier, and I'm sure many of you uh, <clears throat> have really been paying attention to what's been happening with the impeachment proceedings and uh, the, the the violence. Really, uh, I, I don't know about you, but it absolutely stunned me. And so uh, I, I was gonna. I'm gonna bring. Arlene, do you have any announcements you need to make? Just a minute. Um, I don't believe I do. I was, you know, you've already announced the concert, but uh, I will mention that the 
impeachment trial will continue on uh, television at noon today. And I believe it's also being broadcast on on USF uh, radio. Well, it really is a fascinating and worth listening to. I'm going to put on the uh, impeachment uh, video they showed the first day. Uh, and then hopefully we can reach our next guest. But I'm going to put this on because to me it's it's pretty horrifying. And it is our history. We will stop the steal. Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. to say we have our guest with us, uh, Jeet, here. And uh, tell me, Jeet, <laughs> I'm sure you've gone through that quite a bit, but that's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Um, the, uh, the presentation that the Democrats did of the case against Trump, uh, you know, used a lot of these uh, Trump's own words uh, and videos from that day. And I think, um, you know, it was about a month ago, and people, uh, more than a month, and, uh, you know, like people's memories tend to fade naturally 
was a real shock to see all these things again and to see them laid out in such a clear way uh, to really establish Trump's guilt uh, in inciting uh, a mob to attack Congress. And uh, I've been a miss here. I meant to introduce Ajit. Ajit writes for the nation and writes very, very well. And so I'm hoping that you're familiar uh, with some of his writing. And particularly, I particularly was interested in his latest article where he really is very concerned. Uh, and oh, also, though, he's written a book. <laughs> I have to ask him about that sometime. In Love with Art, Francis Mooley's Adventures in, com- in Comics <laughs> with Arthur Spiegelman. Uh, but uh, he's, he writes in the nation, and uh, I think very justifiably, Jeet, you're very concerned that uh, with, with what's happening, that actually, uh, that the presentation being made, if there is no attempt and no effort at at dialogue with the Republicans and the Democrats, we have a far more deeper, we have a far deeper problem than just Trump. And I wanted to go into that a little more because, frankly, I know you're watching the footage. I found watching the footage, particularly yesterday, with the terrible violence to the policemen who were fighting so hard really was, you know, I thought I, I knew a little bit about it, but to me, I just found it gut-wrenching. Didn't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there's a lot more footage than we had known about. And, you know, like in a news event, things are very chaotic and you get a broad impression. But as you see it laid out there, very clearly what happened. And there was, um, I mean, a couple of people have said this. Uh, AOC said this and uh, even Marco Rubio said this, which is that there's... Um, uh, things were much worse than people know, and people were much closer to being killed than I think a lot of people know. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very disturbing. Uh, but, I mean, to the broader point, I mean, yeah, the discrepancy between the two sides is very dismaying, that the Democrats really laid out a very clear, uh, forceful case using evidence, using logic. Um, and the two Republican lawyers, I mean, like, one of them just sort of meandered on like um, a student that had to do a book report and didn't read the book and just said, you know, <laughs> well, Treasure Island. It's about treasure uh-huh. and it's set on an island. <laughs> that's like literally uh, his uh, presentation. Uh, you know, he said, you know, the Constitution, it's, uh, it's our Constitution and the Senate is great. Uh, and so, yeah. uh, but I, mean, I think that itself shows that A, there's no case for Trump, but B, there's a kind of contempt that the Republicans have because it's like arguments don't matter. We're going to vote how we're going to vote. Yeah, as students, we've all been there, done that. You know, you haven't read the book, so you somehow have to give this report. Uh, But that is the kind of attitude, you know, like Lindsey Graham, you know, saying that it was absurd, you know, and uh, that some, some others. And I... I, I, I think when one looks at that, and January 6th, and, and tell me, you know, gee, because I just scratch my head, because I, I guess I really am at a loss to understand uh, when it's not only really what happened in, at the Capitol on January 6th, although that really so totally, t- totally showed his disdain for democracy. Uh, but the kind of antics and the kind of breaking of rules and regulations and twisting anything for his benefit that we have put up with the president for the last four years. And it would seem to me that now, you know, they had a chance before with the impeachment, but they, you know, wouldn't allow the witnesses. They ignored the subpoenas, et cetera. And so, but now they have a chance to really measure this and decide, you know, that 
are we going to allow these kind of actions to happen? And then if they do, with our experience not doing anything after Nixon, if you will, that instead of him being actually maybe criminally charged and dealt with, that here we are now with Trump and what happened January 6th, that if nothing is done to, to really examine this and to me correct it, it's open season, anything goes. It frankly, to me, is the end of a democracy. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I go back to, you know, something Trump said in uh, 2016, uh, notoriously, that, you know, uh, his supporters love him so much that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose anybody, uh, any popularity. Uh, and I think that's right with the Republicans. I think they decided Trump is their man and that they're going to allow everything. I mean, this is a remarkable thing. Those Republican members of Congress and the senators, they were like, you know, party to this as victims. They could have been um, uh, killed as well by the, by the mob. Uh, but they, are, most of them seem to be so afraid of Trump and so afraid of their own supporters that they're not going to punish Trump. And that's a really remarkable thing. Um, it's like uh, they're putting their own safety. Well, no, I mean, I guess they're looking out for their safety by, you know, they're thinking, well, if I uh, um, don't do this, then uh, uh, I'll be safe. But I mean, like, it's really, they're abandoning their duties um, as lawmakers and as, as, as democratic citizens. I mean, like, it's, it's really shocking. Well, and, you know, gee, uh, and I'm wondering, because I always, I'm, I'm hearing everybody say they're so afraid, they're so afraid. Well, I'm not so sure it's fear as much as it is a total disdain and disrespect for democracy. I think that they really... Well, I think that's true as well. Yeah, I think that's true. They, they, they don't... I think, I think it's a mixture. I think some of them are afraid to some degree, and there are others that, like, really don't think Trump did anything wrong. And that's also a real problem, right? I think that, like, you know, like, Trump didn't get away with it, but one could imagine a circ- another circumstance where someone else, um, a Republican president, you know, uses a mob to thwart democracy... And if that happens, it seems like the Republican Party is on board with that. So it's a, I don't know how it's sustainable. Like, it's, you know, America has really two major parties, and if one party is going to be like this, I, I honestly don't see, like, you know, how democracy works in the long run. Like, you know, like four, eight, 12 years down the line, what's going to happen? It's, 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 it's terrifying. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I'm really worried. I really feel democracy right now is hanging by a thread. And, you know, that I, I have wondered many times what really Mitch McConnell stood for. Uh, you know, what really were his principles? Or a Lindsey Graham, who has done quite a 180 in just the last four years with Trump. And, you know, you look at it and you think, uh, well, how has it come to this? That, you know, like we're now, you know, already we're hearing about, you know, deficits and we have to, you know, be so miserly with spending, et cetera. I, 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 I guess I'm just concerned that they, that the America they want has nothing to do with the America that has a democracy or people's votes. Because, you know, we're talking perhaps the most fundamental thing that this country has, the elections, you know, free open elections, and that there is a peaceful transition of power 
And, you know, we hear so much about the Constitution, but the founders, the writers of the Constitution were only too aware of that. You know, they came out of uh, kings and royalties and, and all kinds of, you know, situations like this where there's great treason. And, and so they really wrestled over the whole idea. And so impeachment really was an important measure that they thought that, you know, that people would have a, a final say to get rid of a, a malcreant and, you know, realize that this person... You know, you have to have a certain temperament, a certain loyalty, a certain ability to be a president, to be a senator, to be anybody in politics, really. And if they don't have it, I think they were aware far more than we have been that they can be very, very dangerous. And to me, we've reached that point, you know, that... You know, are we the frog that's been in the water and it's been, you know, heating up too slowly that we aren't aware that we are third degree burns and we're very near death? Uh, and I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but I really kind of see it as that stage right now. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, one could, um, I don't think you're being overly dramatic, and uh, I think it's going to become a real like, uh, issue down the road, like, what the Republican Party deals with Trump. And I have to say that, like, one of the outcomes of this impeachment is if they don't vote to convict, then Trump is going to be stronger than ever. And I think we're seeing this, that Trump has really proven himself to be the, the warlord of the Republican Party, the one that everyone, you know, bows their head to and kisses the ring. Uh, and the Republicans, and we have to give credit to the brave, you know, the genuine bravery of people like Mitt Romney, who have stood up to Trump, but the fact is that the Republicans who have stood up to Trump, um, they have faced a huge backlash from their fellow Republicans. And a lot of them, uh, like in Wyoming, the local Republican Party condemned Lynn Cheney. Uh, so I really think that the upshot of all this is that the party is still loyal to Trump and to Trumpism. You know, and that's it. So, so, so really it becomes, this wasn't just Trump. And it wasn't just his uh, really passionate, you know, proud boy followers, uh, a couple of thousand of them from the Capitol, but that the whole party is going along with us. And that's really something. I mean, like, to have a political party that is uh, um, willing to tolerate insurrection and willing to tolerate something where, like, you know, they themselves were at risk. I mean, like, the people in the mob, they were yelling, kill Mike Pence. And the Republican Party is okay with a, a mob that wanted to kill Mike Pence. I mean, that's really shocking. Or they're okay with inciting that mob. They're okay with what Trump did. They might think, like, well, the members of the mob should be punished, but they're okay with uh, uh, what is the real problem, which is that Trump incited them. And, you know, and again, we're talking to Jeet here. And Jeet, I think what I'm really worried about, uh, because I don't think there's, I don't think many of us doubt that there won't be the votes in the Senate to convict him, you know, impeach him, uh, which says a lot right there. And so I'm wondering, uh, you know, are the Democrats, because to me, they, they've really created quite a record. And that record is going to be viable and people can observe it and watch it. And I, and so I, I don't know whether they're, they're aware that they probably won't be able to get the votes to actually impeach him. And so they're aiming for two years down the line, 
where they are hoping that people will remember this and remember how it was not resolved and that some people really felt it was okay to have what happened January 6th and that they'll turn them out of office. Uh, do you think that's part of the gamble that is happening right now? Because to me, I'm looking at that and I'm kind of concerned because Americans are pretty ahistoric, but hopefully they'll change. But are you seeing it any way like that? Well, I think one thing, good thing that's happening is that a lot of Republicans are leaving the party. I mean, there's actually been a, um, uh, hundreds of thousands of people have left the party. And so I do think that this is an opportunity for, like, a real reckoning, like, uh, and to be followed, you know, two years down the line, four years. If we can get enough voters uh, to, like, say, like, this is too much, this is a breach too far, and as you say, have a record of that they supported Trump and they have to be punished for it, then, yeah, I think that there is a real possibility for something positive to come from this. And then and maybe a reform of the Republican Party, you know, like, not, not now, not two years or four years, or maybe like 10, 10, 15 years down the line, you could see the Republican Party reforming itself if, if uh, they get punished enough. Yeah, and and, and hopefully uh, people like you writing in the nation and others, because I thought it was kind of interesting that Canada had no trouble at all with the Proud Boys carrying, calling them domestic terrorists. It was it was done and done, you know, just in a few weeks' time. Uh, and in yeah. this and, and in this country, perhaps we need to examine domestic terrorism just a wee bit, not just a wee bit, but really look at it and realize that it is our major threat. Actually, that is our real security threat. It isn't. It isn't from abroad. It's right here. Arlene, did you want to say something? Yeah, one of our listeners wanted us to ask you if you have any idea how we can find out who gave the tours on the fifth, oh, the day before, right? Oh, okay. Well, I, well, this is the thing, though. I think the impeachment itself is so focused on Trump's guilt that that isn't going to be gone into. But I do think that, like you know, uh, after the impeachment, uh, they should set up like. You know, nine eleven type style uh, commission to investigate everything and to like really like get a historical record, as you said, and to like um, uh, nail down those questions. And I think that those are real uh, issues. So I think that that's not for the impeachment; that's for like a commission down the road. And to have real subpoena power, really have some power. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like I said, the 9-11 commission. Okay, Jeet here. I know how busy you are and how in demand you are. Uh, I'm noticing the time. Anything uh, we didn't cover you quickly wanted to say? Uh, no, except that, I mean, I think people, uh, if you have a Republican senator or Congress uh, person, like, you know, like, they should, um, you just call them up and tell them, like, you know, like, uh, I think this is a really crucial thing, and I think that people, uh, politicians do pay attention to what constituents say. So um, I think... Uh, uh, it's very important for people to try to like pressure the Republicans on this. Oh. And, and we have two of them. Uh, <laughs> I've yes, been yeah, calling. Exactly, exactly. So I would encourage your uh, listeners to like call up Mr. Rubio and uh, I think Mr. Scott, right? <laughs> oh, okay. Mr. Scott is the other one. And uh, yeah, so. Rubio and Scott. And are you going to be posting anything today? Uh, no, not today. I have to, I'm working more on the impeachment tomorrow. But okay, I'll, that's some of the stuff that we talked about. I'll look for it and post a link to it. Okay, well, you are listening to WMNF Tampa, Sarasota, Clearwater. Let's go out with hopefully a little Marian Anderson and then stay tuned for the news. Keep it here all day. Thank you for listening. 